Good morning. The reading today is from Philippians 1, 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The word of the Lord. I'd like to start with a little thought experiment this morning. If you were to wake up one morning and you had a text message from a friend that said, did you hear what happened? Would you think, good thing or bad thing? The way it's worded kind of makes it sound like a bad thing. So that when you respond, no, what happened, there'd be a little feeling of dread in your stomach. Or, you know, when you uh, check the news, is there ever a moment right before you turn on your TV or your device or whatever you check the news on, where you think, hmm, I wonder if something bad happened. That, I, I have that experience. Now, maybe it's just me, but I think for me at least, it's kind of a Pavlovian response I have because our world seems like it's full of catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. So we're always like bracing ourselves for what's going to happen next. You know, um, the question is not whether suffering and evil are going to hit our life. The question is when. One of the biggest challenges in our lives is that we live in a world that is full of suffering, catastrophes, disease, death, and evil. The question is not if those things will hit your life, but when, which means the real question is how will you respond? What will you do when suffering and evil engulfs your life? We're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman jail cell. He's facing execution. And uh, one of the reasons that he's writing is because uh, the Philippians, his friends, got this message that said, did you hear what happened to Paul? Paul is in jail. Oh, no, they think this is a catastrophe. God was doing all these great things through Paul, but it, now it looks like it's all come to an end. What a tragedy. But as they read this letter, Paul keeps saying over and over again, rejoice. Rejoice. How can Paul say that? Well, we started to look at this subject last week, but suffering is like a furnace. It will either destroy whatever you put into it, or it will purify it into something even more beautiful than it was when it went in. But in order to get the beauty, you have to turn up the heat. Paul is in the furnace right now, but he's overflowing with joy. How can he do that? And what's more, how can we rejoice when we go into the furnace of suffering and evil in our own lives? Let's take a look at this passage because it faces this question head on. 
Paul is doing three things here, and if we can learn to do these three things, then we can also face our furnaces without being devoured by them. The three things are this. Paul is being realistic about evil. He's resting in the story. And lastly, he's rejoicing in the true hero. He's realistic about evil, resting in the story, and rejoicing in the true hero, okay? So first, Paul is being realistic about evil. He begins this passage by saying this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, as we just saw it, he knows the Philippians have got a message. Did you hear what happened to Paul? He's in jail. He might die. And so they're thinking this is horrible because everywhere Paul went, people's lives were being changed by the gospel. Churches were getting started. It was a movement that was transforming the whole world. Now it looks like the whole thing is coming to an end. But Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now that little word really is the key to the whole thing. Paul is saying that God is able to use even these horrible things as part of advancing the gospel in the world. In other words, God is able to use bad things, even evil things, as part of his good purposes in the world. But here's the thing. Paul's whole point only makes sense if the suffering and the evil are real. That's the only way it makes sense. So friends, for instance, I mean, think about it like this. You know, Paul is saying that suffering and evil are real. That when suffering and evil come into our lives, it, it depends on saying that these things actually exist, that, that, that they are real and that we need to, to deal with them. Uh, you know, this is radically different from any other worldview, especially when you realize that the Bible is not offering us a superficial, sentimental, puerile, childish response to the problem of evil. It's saying, no, evil is real. It's not the way things are supposed to be, and God is doing something about it. Now, this is unique, especially when we consider the alternatives. First, there's what we could call the secular approach to suffering and evil. For instance, Richard Dawkins is a scientist and one of the most famous atheists in the world. In one of his books, he says, uh, the universe we observe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In other words, what we call suffering and evil is nothing more than a random chaotic universe being random and chaotic. There is no evil, nothing but per uh, pitiful indifference. One of the... Um, most potent pictures of this, I think, is from the Coen Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men. It's about a serial killer who goes around murdering people. In fact, he offers many of his victims uh, a chance to escape death by giving them a coin toss. Heads you live, tails you die. Your fate depends on random luck. But then, at the end of the movie, this serial killer is driving down the street, and another car comes plowing into him. Bam! And this serial killer, he pulls himself out of the wreckage, he's badly injured, and he goes stumbling off down the street. And one of the main messages of the movie, in fact, it's present in a lot of the Coen Brothers movies, is that in reality, there's not much difference, if any, between a serial killer and a car crash. We call one of those things evil, and the other we call an accident. But both of them are an example of a random chaotic universe just being random and chaotic. There is no evil nothing but pitiless indifference. 
Now, another major view um, is what we could call the Eastern view, uh, another approach to suffering and evil. The Eastern view of reality, and by the way, it's not just in Eastern spiritual traditions. You will find this in many other places throughout the world. But the Eastern view of reality says that God is everything and everything is God. It's, it's all one. Therefore, what we call good and evil are really the result of our incredibly limited human perception as finite human beings. And if we could just raise our consciousness enough, then we would see that there is no good and evil. Everything is God. One of the most famous examples of this is uh, a parable called the parable of the Chinese farmer. Uh, Once there was a farmer, a Chinese farmer, and one day his horse ran off, and all his neighbors gathered around and said, what a tragedy. But the farmer said, maybe. The next day, his horse came back, along with seven other wild horses, and all of his neighbors gathered around, and this time they said, what a blessing. But the farmer said, maybe. The next day, uh, the farmer's son was taming one of the wild horses, but he got thrown off the horse and broke his leg. And again, all the neighbors gather around and they say, what a tragedy. But the farmer says, maybe. The next day, um, soldiers come around and they're conscripting people into the army, but they reject the farmer's son because his leg is broken. And of course, once again, the neighbors gather around and they say, what a blessing. But what do you think the farmer said? Maybe. Now look, we can interpret this parable different ways, and people do interpret it different ways. But Alan Watts was a very famous speaker and writer in the 1960s. He was instrumental in introducing Zen Buddhism to uh, Western culture. And here's what Alan Watts said about this parable. He said, the whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity, and it's really impossible to tell whether anything that happens is good or bad. It's too big. It's impossible to tell whether anything is good or bad. Now listen, whenever we compare and contrast different views of reality, like the secular view or the Eastern view, with the biblical view, I think it's always important to say that each of these are very serious views of reality with a long, serious pedigree, and that it's important to consider these things seriously, especially if you're exploring faith. And on top of that, None of these things uh, can be proved or disproved. Um, What we can do is weigh these different views and ask the question, which one makes better sense of the world as we experience it? So, for instance, instead of a farmer whose horse runs away, what if the story was about an army who kills the farmer's children, rapes and kills his wife, and burns his whole village down? Would that change anything for us? If the farmer said, this is a tragedy, would we say, maybe, Would we say, this is just a random chaotic universe being random and chaotic? Or would we say, along with the Bible, no, this is evil. It's not the way things are supposed to be, and something needs to be done about it. Friends, each one of us is going to have to figure this out for ourselves. But here's the point. Um, As problematic as the presence of evil and suffering is for believing in a loving God, and it is a problem, only the Bible offers us a view of reality that says suffering and evil actually are real, that it's not the way it's supposed to be, and that God is actually doing something about it. One of the main things we need to do in order to deal with suffering and evil in our own lives is we need to begin by acknowledging that suffering and evil are real, that we live in a fallen world. We need to be honest about that. Paul is not denying that what happened to him is bad, 
He's saying it's part of something bigger that God is doing in the world. And that leads to our second point. Paul, first, is being realistic about evil. But second, he's resting in the story because here's the thing. It's one thing to talk about suffering and evil at a theoretical level. But some of you are suffering right now. Some of you um, are dealing with the fallout of evil in your lives right now. This is not theoretical for you, and you want to know, what do I do when suffering and evil touch my life? Well, look at Paul in this passage. Paul, um, he keeps talking about the fact that he's in jail. In fact, this is a very short passage. It's only seven verses, and yet five times in seven verses, Paul mentions the fact that he's in jail. Three times, he describes it as my imprisonment, which literally means my chains. But here's the amazing thing. You know, you and I, I think, let me just speak for myself, I have a tendency to think about my sufferings in terms of how it affects me and my life. But every time Paul talks about his suffering, he always thinks about it in terms of how God is using it in other people's lives. So notice, uh, for instance, Paul says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, that's like um, roughly 9,000 Roman soldiers. He says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my suffering, is for Christ. Paul's sufferings uh, mean that, that thousands of Roman soldiers are learning more about Jesus. Or, Paul goes on to say, most of the brothers and sisters, that's fellow Christians, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's sufferings mean that other Christians are being encouraged to proclaim the gospel, which means that even more people are learning about Jesus. In other words, Paul sees everything in his life, including the suffering and the evil, as part of something bigger that God is doing in this world. That doesn't mean that the evil isn't real or that it doesn't hurt. It means that God is using it as part of something bigger. He's using it for something good in the world. And the Bible is full of this. For instance, um, the end of the book of Genesis tells the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they threw him in a pit and ended up selling him into slavery in Egypt where he spent the next 13 years in jail. And yet, through a bizarre series of events, Joseph ended up becoming second in command of Egypt and saving the whole world from a famine. And later in the story, when he sees his brothers again, they're terrified because they know what they did to Joseph was evil. But Joseph says this, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving alive of many people. God was using even the evil in order to accomplish good, in order to accomplish something bigger in the lives of others. That doesn't mean the evil wasn't real. It means that God is using it as part of a bigger story. Friends, that is exactly what's happening to Paul here. It's all part of a bigger story, and Paul is resting in that. Here's why this is so important for us. Last week, we were talking about this question what are people for? Is there any universal meaning and purpose for all of humanity? This week, the question gets even more um, specific. What am I for? In other words, does my individual life mean anything in this world? Does my unique presence matter in this world? 
This question is huge for us because we live in a world, in in a modern Western culture that says, well, there is no bigger story. There is no grand narrative. Anybody who says that is doing a power play. That's oppressive. No, everyone must create meaning and purpose for their own lives. The way that plays out in our modern world is we live in what we could call a therapeutic technological culture. We live in what we could call a therapeutic technological culture. Therapeutic means that we've been trained to think that the whole purpose of life is for us to be happy and to feel good about ourselves, that we should look inside our heart, listen to our desires, and then actualize those desires into the world around us. The challenge is, of course, we live in a world that's full of suffering and evil. And so whenever anything prevents us from being happy and feeling good about ourselves, whenever we're sad or anxious or depressed, um, whenever people, places, and things stand in between us and the fulfillment of our desires, then a technological culture means, well, there's an app for that. There's a hack for that. There's a pill or a policy or even a surgical procedure for that. We have a tendency to see everything that happens in our lives as being all about our own individual story. And as a result, you know, even if you believe in God, um, that means that we have a tendency to look at, at spirituality and God as just one of many hacks for living our best life now. In other words, we turn everything into a tool to serve our personal agenda, even God, And you can see that in the way we talk about spirituality in our culture. We say that spirituality and faith and religion and all of that, um, that that the really important thing in finding a spiritual path is not finding something that's true, but finding something that works for you. Here's the tragedy in all of this. What are we looking for, ultimately? Like I said, we're looking for meaning. We're looking um, for something bigger than ourselves. The tragedy is that whenever we look for something bigger than ourselves within ourselves, we're actually preventing ourselves from ever finding it. There's no rest. It's like trying to transport the contents of a freight liner on a tricycle. It can't possibly support the weight of what we're trying to do. And the tragedy of that is that we'll never really find what we're looking for. Friends, Um, In this world, we are looking for meaning. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for something bigger than ourselves. But here's the hope, okay? Meaning only makes sense within the context of the story. Meaning only makes sense within the context of a story. For instance, think, you know, any good story has a certain structure to it. It goes like this. Every story begins with a setting. You know, once upon a time, there was a fish named Marlin. Uh, Every story also has a problem. One day, Marlon's son, Nemo, got lost. Every story also has a solution or some kind of rescue. Marlon went looking for Nemo, but in the end, uh, it was Nemo's courage that ended up saving the day. And then every story has a resolution, and from that day forward, Marlon learned to trust Nemo more. Setting, problem, solution, resolution. Every story has a structure to it, and every single event in the story, no matter how small the event, has meaning because it's part of this bigger story. That means the Bible is offering you a a way of looking at your life that says your life, your individual, unique, unrepeatable life has meaning and is precious because it's part of a bigger story about something that God is doing in this world. 
Friends, Paul sees everything in his life, including the suffering and evil, as part of something bigger that God is doing in this world, as part of a bigger story that God is telling in this world. That's how he sees his life. It doesn't mean the evil isn't real. It means that God is able to use it for something bigger, so that instead of focusing on his sufferings and how it's affecting him, he's able to focus on how God is using these things in the lives of others, and he can rest in that. Would you like to be able to do the same thing? I would too, which leads to our last point. Paul is being realistic about evil. Second, he's resting in the story. But last, he's rejoicing in the true hero. Because here's the question, um, what kind of story is God telling in this world? I say this frequently here, but it's worth repeating. In order to know how to live, we need to know what kind of story we're in. So the big question is, okay, what kind of story are we in? Because I think it's safe to say that, that most people in this world uh, have some intuition that, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Okay, how do we account for that? Well, remember our story structure, setting, problem, solution, resolution. What kind of story is the Bible telling? Well, first, it begins with the setting. The setting of the biblical story is that God created this world to be a place of goodness, beauty, glory, wholeness, and peace. And he put humanity in this world to reflect his goodness, beauty, and glory by caring for this world and cultivating it. The problem in the story is that um, the first human beings didn't want to love God and serve God as participants in God's story. Instead, they rebelled and said, no, we want a new story with ourselves at the center, not God. In other words, we want to be the heroes of our own story. Instead of centering on God, we center on ourselves. The Bible calls that sin, and the result of that is that the world started falling apart. And as a result, we now live in a world full of hatred, violence, poverty, disaster, disease, and death. So, what's the solution to this story? Traditional religion has a tendency to say, well, if you're a good person, or if you devote your life to justice, or if you practice meditation, or whatever, if you work really hard, then you can, um, um, then God will rescue you out of this broken, fallen world so that you can be with Him forever in a disembodied spiritual state we call heaven. In other words, traditional religion is all about what we must do to connect to God. But what is Paul doing here? In this passage, Paul goes on to talk about how other people were preaching the gospel. Um, some of the people were preaching the gospel from pure motives. Other people were preaching the gospel from less than pure motives. But what does Paul say about all of this? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, Paul is talking about preaching the gospel. So here's the question, what is the gospel? Is the gospel only that in every way being a good person is proclaimed? Or devoting yourself to a life of justice is proclaimed? Or an ethical system is proclaimed? Or being on the right side of history is proclaimed? No. He says only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. Friends, in other words, the gospel is not primarily instructions about what we must do to connect with God. That's traditional religion. The gospel is primarily news 
about good news, about what God has done to connect with us through Jesus, through His life, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. Remember, the essence of sin is giving our ultimate love to and centering our lives on something other than God. And the reason we do that is because we want to be in control of our own happiness. But when we do that, we're, we're making ourselves the heroes of our own story. And, and as a result, when suffering and evil come into our lives, that means we're going to be discouraged, we're going to be in despair, we're going to get angry, we're going to say, hey God, I've been a good person, I've been doing the right thing. How could you let this happen to me? It's going to be one of those, ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building kinds of moments for us. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in one of those moments when God just feels so far away? Paul is in one of those moments right now in this passage. And yet, instead of despairing or being discouraged or instead of getting angry, he, instead of saying any of that, Paul is rejoicing. Instead of saying, what's really happening is God has abandoned me, he's saying, no, what's really happening is God is advancing the gospel. Paul is able to look at everything in his life, including the suffering and the evil, and see that God is using it to bring his healing and his renewal into the world through Jesus. Paul knows something (laughs) that we all desperately need to know, and it's simply this, that often when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. When God feels farthest, oftentimes he's working the hardest. And the reason Paul knows that is because he's rejoicing in the true hero of the story, Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Jesus is the ultimate place that looks like the ultimate, ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building kind of moments. The cross looks like the ultimate place where God felt farthest. Because when Jesus was nailed to the cross, all of his followers would have looked at that and said, well, what's really happening here is God has abandoned us. And yet, what's really happening is God was abandoning Jesus so that God would never have to abandon us. Even though the cross looks like the place where God feels farthest, it's actually the place where God is working the hardest because on the cross, Jesus was taking all the judgment we deserve for centering our lives on ourselves so that we could receive all the love that Jesus deserves for always centering his life on God. It means that when we go through suffering, instead of you know, feeling like God has abandoned us, we can know that what's really happening is that God is drawing near to us through Jesus. We can know that when God feels farthest, He's working the hardest, and the cross shows us that. So friends, here's the question. When suffering and evil hit your life, how do we respond? We can think about it like this. Um, Imagine a clear, sunny day. There's not a cloud in the sky. Can you picture that in your mind? Um, Let me ask you a question. Can you see the light? I'm not talking about the sun, which is the source of the light. I mean, can you see the light itself? Well, not really. We see everything else because of the light, but you don't actually see the light itself. But now, imagine some clouds move into the sky, dark, ominous storm clouds. These clouds come into the sky, and we've all seen this, that um, all of a sudden there will be this shaft of light that will break through one of the clouds, And all of a sudden, the light that was there the whole time, but we couldn't really see it, all of a sudden, now it becomes focused in this brilliant, radiant, beautiful shaft of light. And now all of a sudden, we're seeing the beauty. We're seeing the radiance. We're seeing the glory that we never would have seen before 
except for the cloud. Friends, if you let him, God will take your clouds, your suffering, and turn it into a cloud that reveals the glory, the beauty, and the radiance of Jesus to you and through you to the world around you. But in order for that to happen, it means we have to be honest about the reality of evil. It means we have to learn how to rest in the bigger story of what God is doing in this world. And it means that we have to learn how to rejoice in the true hero of the story, Jesus Christ. And friends, when all of those things come together in our life, then when you go into the furnace of suffering, far from devouring you, it will turn you and transform you into a radiant, glorious, beautiful vessel of the glory, radiance, and beauty of Jesus himself in this world. Because we will know that when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. And in that, we can rejoice. Would you pray with me if you're willing? Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you that all the things that we look at in the world, and they are evil, there are real sufferings in this world. There are real catastrophes in this world. There is real evil in this world. Lord, we praise you that um, even though these things are real, you have promised us that it's not the way it's supposed to be and that you are doing something about it. And you've given us the ultimate, um, not just example, but the ultimate reality through Jesus on the cross. And we thank you, Father, for entering into this world and and, um, addressing the suffering and evil of this world head on and rescuing us from evil in this world so that we could be vessels of your glory and your beauty and your life in this world and, and to the rest of this world. And so we pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to be honest about the reality of evil, that you would help us to rest It's hard, Lord. Help us to rest in the bigger story of what you're doing in this world. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the true hero of the story, Jesus Christ, Father, and to take heart and be encouraged by the reality that our ultimate good is not dependent on what we do to connect with you, but on what you have done to connect with us, to save us, to rescue us through Jesus Christ. For we pray all of these things in his beautiful name. Amen.